How are you? Oh, we had such a great Easter this last week, and if you were here, again, I'm so glad that you joined us, and I'm glad that you are back to join us in this series on the book of Hebrews. Um, you know, uh, just really quick to jump in, by the way, I'm Ryan Grable, I'm the lead pastor here, if we haven't met, I'm so happy that you're here, and uh, we are going to take some time that we like to do as a church, if you're newer to our church, um, we will, a few times a year, take a book of the Bible, and a lot of times we will go through a series on like a topic, and some of them are very relevant to us, and we're like, man, that's exactly the, the subject I wanted to talk about. This, this, when we go through a book like this, my goal is not that you're sitting here and going like, dude, if I wanted to go to a class, like I, I, I would have gone to a class. So my goal is to actually do what the book is meant to do, and that's to preach to you right where you're at, even though this book was written to a specific group of people with specific problems going on in their life. So I kind of, <clears throat> as you study this book, and I think you're going to love what this book has to say. Um, you can study this book. You're going to get these major themes. These are my two major themes as I read the book of Hebrews. Is why G the, the, the goal of the writer. Why Jesus is better than whatever you're going through. Whatever you're experiencing. Whatever pressure you're feeling. Whatever disaster that is in front of you. Whatever temptation that is pulling you somewhere else. Why Jesus is better and why living in that truth is worth everything. That, as, you, as we go through this book, you're going to get this theme of like why Jesus is better and then why it's worth everything. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, when I first started reading the Bible as a kid, I, I, I never, or when I became a believer, I never really like would, you know, some people will like read the Bible in a year has anybody ever done that? And then you skip over some, some books where you're like, ooh, that's talking about weird stuff. I'm just going to go to the next. Give me the story part. And so I kind of would do that, and, but it was too hard for me. And then so I started kind of reading verses I really, really liked. Anybody like that? Where you just have a verse, you're like, I like that verse. That verse speaks to me. And then you kind of take that line into your life. It becomes, even maybe for that week, like your mantra it's like, a, it's like something you can kind of stand on, some people would say. And as I would read through, I would have these like one-liners, I'll call them. And, and when something would happen, that one-liner would populate in, in my mind, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that verse, right? Or someone would write them on a Post-it note uh, above their mirror, or you'd see it maybe even on a bumper sticker. And, and so you would have this one-liner, and they're very good. Because they're, they're a strong verse in that book of the Bible. And they're a good reminder of you, uh, for you. And those one-liners for me for years were really, really, really good. And I needed them. And they grew my faith in an important way. Hebrews has a lot of one-liners, if you will, that you might recognize or know to bring to the book of Hebrews, or you just maybe know that verse. And so I want to put up at least right here, here's some of the top one-liners that you've probably heard from Hebrews. If you could throw those up, the first one here is, you'll know this, now faith is being sure of what we hope for 
and certain of what we do not see. That's in chapter 11. Now, that verse, by the way, there's a website if you want to go to it. It ranks all Bible verses. It has 30,000 verses that people are... <laughs> I don't know how you rate them, but it's based on people's votes. This verse came up 44 of favored verses amongst 30,000 that people had rated. I have never rated one of those verses. The top verse, can you guess what the top verse that people rated as the? Oh, you're so good. John had the top three. I was like, dang, John, that's good. He did but it doesn't matter. This came 44 out of 30,000. It's a good verse. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. How about this one? For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, chapter 4. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, chapter 11. Not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Chapter 10. Now, that might not be your favorite verse, but that's the pastor's verse to tell everyone, like, you should be in church. Like, do you know what I mean? That we beat people over the head with that one. John, or sorry, Jesus Christ is the same today, yes, or yesterday, today, and forever. Chapter 13. I think that should have been rated higher than 480. That, that, that's a strong verse. And it's powerful. All of these are snippets of Hebrews that you would draw back to and go, oh, I know that verse, right? And they're really good. And for me, they worked really good. I think until it, it, until it didn't work. And I, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way. I think at some point, like, I, those verses held something. But, like, it, I needed more to understand that verse. I needed a bigger picture. I needed to zoom out a little bit and see why that verse was written. They're powerful in their moments and we can stand on them, but there's so much more to them. And I think at some point I started to lean in on it. I needed to understand that verse's surroundings. And, and that's what we're going to do a little bit today. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry for anybody who doesn't care about this analogy I'm going to give because I know it's very, very, very narrow. And most of you won't even know what I'm talking about. But I want to tell you that I'm the proud parent of a newly rebuilt two-stroke dirt bike engine, okay? <laughs> I, um, I have it on display in my garage. I'm getting ready to seat it into its frame. And, and I started working on this two-stroke engine uh, before I knew what a two-stroke engine was. And I, it was a 1974 engine, and it, it, it's a barn find. If you, anyways, I'm sorry for all of you who don't care, but it, it was a precious find, and it's a, it's a great dual sport engine. And so I found it. I started working on it. I started doing things to it before I even knew what the engine was. I didn't know what kind of oil went into it. I didn't understand the engine. I didn't know, but I'm pulling things apart. I'm rebuilding things. I rebuilt this oil pump. Who knows how to do that? I didn't. I just started Googling things and then chat rooms and like trying to figure out how do you do this. Des layouts and designs and figuring out what parts were, but I didn't know how the engine worked. 
And then I started rebuilding the top end of the engine, and it was for the piston makes the explosion. So I started rebuilding that. And then I was like, rings. Okay, I got to get piston rings, all this stuff. And that, but I put it on, and I'm like, but I don't even know what piston rings do. But I know that they go on here, and I need to put them on there. This, this is dangerous work with an engine, by the way. I, <laughs> I haven't tested it yet, so next week you could see tears. But, but then I'm like, okay, trying to figure it out, and then I'm replacing the engine, and then the gaskets. A gasket seems so unbelievably difficult. Who could replace a gasket? But it's a piece of paper. Anyway, so I'm going through all of this, but I still don't know how the engine works. I'm just replacing pieces. I'm, I'm, I'm understanding a part of it and then a part of it. But I tell you what, one day I decided to educate myself how a two-stroke engine works, and it is a beautiful, masterfully done piece of machinery it works in unison and you have to have it work completely in unison every gear everything works into this stroke that makes this energy and how it puts out the exhaust and how it takes in the fuel it's unbelievable and i finally understood how each one of those parts matter to the perfect timing of this engine and to me then i understood that is how a two-stroke engine works I use this analogy because I think a lot of times it's like that when we're reading scripture. It's like what we're going to do in Hebrews, and I hope you have this experience, that there are these parts and there are these pieces, and we have brought them into our life and into our mind and heart. But I hope that when we are finished with the series, you get what I got when I understood how that engine worked and how every part worked within that engine. And then you get an idea of what Hebrews really, really, truly is about. It will make those scriptures come alive, right, for you. I think that that's how we're going to approach the book, and I hope that's for our whole church. Here's my hope for you. I hope you go with me on this journey, and I, I promise you, you will not regret this journey of opening this book up. I hope that you will look with, at this book with fresh eyes, seeing a bigger picture how all of these verses work in unity to deepen your faith, and they will grow your hope in Christ and cement you deeper into your belief. Because what happens, and you know this, all of us here have questioned our faith. I know you have. All of us here have moments where we're like, man, like, this just happened. God, where are you? This just happened. I'm not so sure. That person had an idea that was, and I didn't understand it, but I didn't know much about my faith, so I got questioned. I'm questioning my faith. All of us have moments where we've been there, but I hope that you are stronger in your faith and your hope uh, is greater by the time we finish the book. That's the intention of the writer of the book, and that's the impact it had on the people that received this book. So let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword to divide truth and lie in the very heart of a person. And God, I thank you for many of uh, these truths in this book, but God, that it, it, it's not an ancient wisdom. It's a wisdom that's present here today, and we're not so different than those people then. We need you, and we need our faith to grow. And some of us in here are on the borderline of whether we even think Christianity is for us. And so God, help us become deeper and grow in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.
Have you ever heard a sermon you really needed to hear and you really needed to hear it bad and you heard it in the right moment? Have you ever had that? <laughs> yeah. Every Sunday for you, right? now. okay, so. I have been at places where I've, had, I've heard a sermon and it was like I'm in a serious place in my life. I happened to come across this sermon and it, it literally, it, it, it changed everything for me. I love a good sermon like that. I was listening one day when I was living in Texas and I stumbled across this sermon by a guy named John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life, one of the best sermons I have ever heard. And it was, I was feeling very like going through the motions in my faith. I was feeling very much like I'm just kind of like uh, mediocre. I'm, 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 I'm just kind of like comfortable with my faith. And then I heard that message and I was like, I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting my life that God gave me, this opportunity Christ gave me. I'm wasting it. It was such a good sermon for me. There's a guy named Stephen Furtick. Whatever you think about him or not, he runs an, an interesting church called Elevation Church. I heard a sermon from him, and I was like, I like him because he's funny. You know what I mean? I always like funny pastors. You know, it's like, oh, hey, I like your analogies. He spoke a message and I'm not an avid listener, but this one got me, and it's called In the Middle. And it was a, what do you do when you're in the middle of, uh, uh, of what God is doing, what he's done, and then you're in the middle of it right now, using the road, uh, the walk to Emmaus story. And then Tim Keller uh, spoke a great message that uh, it was just good for my heart and my soul called generous uh, justice. And when you come across a message and a sermon, and it really is the pivotal moment, it will ultimately, I think, change you. And that's what the book of Hebrews was to a people who needed this message. By the way, the book of Hebrews is not some scholarly writing. It's not written like most of the New Testament books. The book of Hebrews, and most people believe it's called what is an ancient homily, or really, in our words, it's a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. So I'm preaching a sermon on someone's sermon. It's weird, but it's good, though. Like, this sermon is one of the best. But he's writing to a people who are struggling, and the sermon is the right sermon for the people who are struggling. I'll tell you who it was written to. It was written to a people most definitely who needed encouragement to still believe. Now, we can become really comfortable in our faith. And we're just like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's coming back, you know. But these people were struggling because they've left everything to follow Jesus. And times changed. It was no longer in vogue to be a Christ follower. Things were happening in culture and it became very, very difficult. They lost their friends. They lost their lands. They lost their wealth. And they lost, ultimately, uh, either camp that they could have been in. Now they're in the middle in limbo because culture had ostracized them. It was written to people who were questioning if being a Christian was even worth it anymore. We fully can't relate to this now. But there are people all over the world who can relate to that. Is it worth it to be a Christian anymore? 
It's written to a people, I think, who are distracted by a lot of very tantalizing, very interesting, philosophical, uh, 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 new spiritual ideas that's floating amongst the, the Jewish culture at that time in certain um, Jewish groups and sects. And it was written to people who knew what it's like to be outsiders on all ends. It's calling them back to what they originally found in Jesus because they want to leave it badly. And I think it's calling them back to what is better, right? In every way that they're being tempted to and pressured to leave. It's calling them back to what's better. You're going to get this theme all throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better than what you want to leave. And the book of Hebrews is, is a sermon, and, and my goodness, is, it is a good sermon at that. Let me give you the book basics real quick, and then we'll get into four verses. We're going to cover four big verses today. Are you excited about that? Those of you who think I read too much scripture, this is your lucky day. Four verses. You can handle it. The basics of the book, the author nobody knows. We know who Paul's letters are or what his letters are, but we don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews, who they are. The only reason that Hebrews is even in the Bible is because the original people who put the Bible together or canonized it thought that it was Paul's writing. They weren't sure, so what they did is they put it as Paul's writings for sure. This is kind of an appendage to Paul's writings. That is why when you read the Bible and you see Paul's letters and then the book of Hebrews at the very end, that's why it's even in that order because it was like, maybe, maybe Paul, sure. And thank goodness they put it in the canon. And so we have it in that way. But it's, we don't really know, but I'm going to give you my top guess and, I, and, I'm, and it's where most people lean to who wrote it and it was a guy named Apollos. You'll read about him in chapter 18 of Acts. Paul talks about him strongly in 1 Corinthians and, and, and in a controversial way too. But he was somebody who seems like he, if anyone would have written this book, most people are like, that's the guy who probably wrote it. Why he didn't put his name on it, we don't know. But he was a Hellenistic Jew. And so he was very uh, much raised in Greek culture, but was a Jew in practice. Judaism. He's from Alexandria, Egypt. I'm going to give you a little bit about Apollos. I'll never talk about him again. I'll just say from now on, the guy who wrote the book of Hebrews. But he's a Hellenistic Jew from Alexandria in Egypt. He quotes why we think it was two Hellenistic Jews and, and also why someone who was raised in this way. It's because he quotes from the Old Testament a lot in the book, but they are from the Hellenistic translation, which was dominant in the city of Alexandria of where he is from, and he was one of the great minds of that area. And so Hebrews uh, was most likely to an audience of people just like him. And so they were hearing lots of different things. Uh, they weren't in that mainline Judaism, right? Right in Jerusalem. They were raised differently, and so there was different ideas and thinking about uh, the Old Testament and about God. Uh, Timothy is mentioned in the book, and this is why we know it's probably not Paul, because Timothy is mentioned, one of Paul's uh, uh, mentees, and he's called a fellow brother, 
And Paul never called Timothy a fellow brother. He called him a son. So we know that this is someone who's working alongside with Timothy, which would have been probably someone like Apollos. And um, lastly, he is, as he's read this book, and, and all scholars would not disagree, the fact that he was a pastoral theologian. He was doing the work, not like a, sometimes professors, they kind of just talk, but they're not really doing. If you're a professor, I don't mean that offensively. But, 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 but he is like, he is on mission, but he's a brilliant theologian, right? And so whoever wrote this, Apollos, wrote this, it's most likely he is someone who is very, very, very skilled and very much a pastor as well. So you feel it. It's not, just, it's not just intelligent words. It's got a lot of heart behind what it is. And why they know it is because the language he is using is like, um, sometimes when I read a commentary about the Bible and it's a really, really, really smart, brilliant scholar, Chad will recommend them to me. And I'm like reading it and I'm like, I'm looking up every other word. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm like, oh, I hate it. Where I'm like, that's a new word, and that's a new word. And oh, the language level is just high, and the way it's written is uh, for people much smarter than I. And then the high level of what they called like this rhetorical type of speaking, and I'll give you an example, and you'll hear it in the book. They'll use, and this is a Greek method perfected, and if you're really good at it like he is, then you are educated at a very high level to do it and very good at it. So what he would do is say, he would use a basis of an, of an idea that we would all agree on, like, like uh, this is this, but then that would mean also this and this and this, would it not, right? So this, you'll hear this all throughout the book, right? And you'll hear a, a comparison but then also, but if that was true, then this and this and this would be true, would it not, right? So you'll hear it a lot. So you knew he was extraordinarily educated. I'll read one verse from Acts 18, why I think Apollos is this person. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. They don't describe anybody this way. Luke being a professional and, and scholarly in a sense himself, is seeing it in him, and he's giving him these descriptors. And it says to go on, it says, um, though he knew only the baptism of John, hasn't been baptized in the spirit yet, he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, which was a dangerous work intellectually. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You're good, but not, but, but not great yet. And when he wished, uh, sorry, and he wished to cross to Achaia, uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome. Listen to this. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace, uh, uh, through grace had believed. And for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And this is the book of Hebrew. He goes to the Old Testament to bring about the supremacy and the fulfillment of Christ over and over and over again masterfully. This is why I think it's Apollos. The times that it's written in is, is, is 
we know because he doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where it's annihilated. He would have probably mentioned it. We know it's not after that. And we know it's probably not before 64 AD when Christians are being mass persecuted by Nero and, and absolutely destroyed, like in the Colosseums, like when they're in the Colosseums and they're being burnt and they're being eaten alive and it's spectacle, right? So we know it's probably after that, before that, right? We're getting that idea, but it's extreme persecution, and these are Hellenistic Jews are breaking under the pressure of both sides. They're no longer accepted by the mainstream, and they're no longer accepted by the culture they had grown up and known, especially that the Romans were now dominated. Now they just find themselves as just uh, public enemy number one. And they're struggling, right? And people are probably saying to them, their family, you don't have to suffer anymore. Come to the temple. Do the rituals that they knew Christ came to fulfill once and for all. But come and just rejoin because it's getting hard out there. Can you relate to that a little bit? You can. There's so much pressure sometimes to just tamp down your faith. There's so much pressure to choose another way. There's so much pressure that we feel not to the level maybe of being eaten by lions, but to a pressure that sometimes it's just you want to maybe distance yourself from your firm belief. It's hard to be different, and this is what they were experiencing. I think it's hard to think differently. It's hard to act differently. It's hard to be different, and it's definitely hard to believe differently. So this is what they were feeling, and we can relate to this as well. This is why I think this book will encourage some of us here, but they were being invited to come back to their old ways or, or to new ideas in the old way. But the writer of Hebrews is saying the old ways are not better than Jesus. As tempted as we are to go back to the old ways, the things that made us more comfortable, the things that made things easier, the things that just like, I don't have to deal with that anymore. They're not better. They're just safer for you. And that's what he's encouraging them. No, no, Jesus is better. And you're going to see things in the book like this. Like Abraham, Jesus is better. This is pretty bold what he's doing. And it's probably highly offensive. Moses, Jesus is better, is what the author will say. The prophets, Jesus is better and greater. And so to them, he's reminding them again of like, listen, don't hang on to something that was only a mechanism to deliver the truth. Don't return to something because it's easier. Jesus is better. It'd be like this. This is probably offensive to some of the people reading this at the time. It'd be like this. If, if I told you so-and-so here was uh, uh, more impactful on civil rights than Martin Luther King, you'd be like, dude, too far. Right? Would you not? D Okay, you're borderline offensive at this point. And I argued that point. It'd be like that. It'd be like if I said, oh, this president <laughs> would. <laughs> no, no, I have a point. We all went there. 
<laughs> but I wasn't trying to. This president is a greater unifier of the country than Abraham Lincoln. And you'd be like, ah. And I'd be like, no, 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 I promise. You'd be like, that's it's almost offensive. Like, not greater than Abraham Lincoln. It'd be like this. This person is more selfless than Mother Teresa. And you'd be like, really? <laughs> it, it, it would feel like that when you're reading it, when he's making these comparisons. Some people would be highly offensive. But, 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 but the reality to them was, in, in the writers trying to convey, is that Listen, the reality is Jesus is greater than those people that you hold so dearly. But, but they would say the same thing about Jesus too, right? So it's not an easy message for everybody. And he even says, even the angels, Jesus is better than, greater than. It's kind of interesting because that, that, that's this running theme of Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Come return to what is better. Why go for less? The angels part's interesting because we'll cover that next week because there's, there's two chapters designated just to Jesus is better than the angels. It's kind of weird. It's nowhere else. Like Paul doesn't spend two chapters talking about how Jesus is better than angels. Us now are like, of course he is. But to them... What was happening at that time is there was a circulation uh, amongst certain Jewish sects that, that, that branch offs or disenfranchised Jews who kind of went out on their own. They were teaching, and these people were tempted by it, that, that, that the angels were these great and mighty figures that were really, in a way, Messiah-esque like. And so we should be looking to the angels. And they would teach things of like these great figures mentioned in the Old Testament of like, maybe that's the returning Messiah turning people away from Jesus. And so he deals with this over and over again. But what he's trying to ultimately get them to realize is there is no reasonable, tantalizing, interesting new theology that will ever be better than what Jesus delivered in his life, death, and resurrection, and what they are, he's calling them to live back into. We all need that reminder. We all need it. He delivers this sermon to wake them up out of the fog that they're just lost in. They feel like they're swimming and they're drowning to wake them up. And he calls them to embrace the true reality of Jesus and the true life of living in Jesus and who they are in him. We all need that reminder all often in our life in many circumstances and situations. We need it, and he's doing it for them. I titled this message, Jesus is Better. Why not? It's the theme of the book. There's three truths that we're going to hold firmly to, and there's in these four verses. This will be pretty fast. The opening statement, when you read the opening statement of Hebrews, you can definitely tell it's a sermon because he kind of states what he hopes everybody will one once they finish the sermon, once they finish the book, they're going to be able to state these things as truths to them. So the first four verses are the mission statement goal of the book itself. So they're super easy, and I'm going to say it in three ways. One thing he's going to tell them, and they're going to walk away with, if they can walk away with and realize this, is that God never stops speaking. 
He will not stop speaking to his people. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has been speaking to his people. He speaks, and this is a setup for something even greater. So he's reminding them that God has always spoken to us. These people you hold in such high regard, God was speaking to them. It's what makes them great in your mind. And he's been speaking in many ways to many people for his people. You know, what's interesting about God, our God, is that like when you, when you look back at other cultures, every culture especially ancient culture, had a a pantheon of gods. And they're interesting, three of the main ones that I'm always very interested in because they are around the orbit of the Bible is the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians had a pantheon of gods. They had thousands of gods. They have cataloged at least 1,280 of them. They had so many gods, and they played so many roles throughout their long history. Greece had its gods, and they were cruel when you read about their gods. The mythology of their gods, they were, they were selfish. They destroyed people's lives, and they kind of would do a blessing on the side, ultimately for their benefit. And Syria's gods were very political gods. These were the myths of their gods. This is how they viewed God. But our God is a little different when he speaks, Right? They, they, they would often manipulate their gods, the people in power, in order to direct the people through the myth, in order to be a manifestation, really essentially, of the people themselves, the leaders themselves, for power, manipulation, and control. Now, at the end of the day, it benefited those who wanted to wield that power. It's almost the way it was. But that's not our God. And, and I'm going to... Maybe make a case why God is so different than every other myth of gods around the world. And I'll make the case here. Is that God's not that way, and his son surely is not that way. And and, and every other nation was terrorized by the myth of the gods. Uh, but, But God was a little different. Let me read our God and his heart for people and when he spoke. For his people. Leviticus, I know you love the book of Leviticus. You just love reading it. Chapter 19, verse 15. A little snapshot into God. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to poor, the poor or defer to the, to the great. But in righteousness uh, shall you judge your neighbor. You should not go. Listen to all the shall nots. You shall, go, uh, shall not go around as a slanderer among the people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the, uh, the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall not, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Lord. Now, anybody who wants to run and wield a power over people would not live under that standard. This is our God. And this is who the God who was speaking to the prophets for his people. If you were in control and you're like, I'm the one running this thing, I wouldn't even use that to manipulate the people because it would be used against me to hold me accountable. God 
is a good God. Speaking for his people. And when he speaks, it's for his people's benefit, right? It's for their betterment. It speaks against human nature of sin. And, and, and I will say this, it, it, it fights against the powerful who want to suppress. When God speaks, it humbles everybody because he loves his people and he wants for his people to, to thrive. Okay, so that first part sets up the second part and ultimately leads into the second, which is Jesus is the clarity of God's voice. So the author of Hebrews is saying God does speak, but Jesus is the ultimate clarity of his voice. This is how you will hear him the clearest is through Jesus. Verse 2, but in those last days he spoke against us, he spoke to us uh, by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That has to do with wisdom. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his, uh, by the word of his power. And it's ultimately saying if you, if, if you want to know the voice, the heart, the actions of God for his people, look at Jesus. You had all these prophets but Jesus is the final voice. And that, if you want to know God's voice, look at Jesus. His heart of God, the actions he has, and his voice. Jesus, he is the clarity to all of the prophets. John 10.30 is an interesting verse. Jesus makes the proclamation, The Father and I are one. Now, everybody loved that message who was hearing it, especially the Pharisees, right? Verse 31, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one of those are you going to stone me for? Oof, he good. He's real good. He made this statement that was, that was the reality is the father and I are one when I speak the Father's, you're hearing the Father's voice. Clearly, more clearly than any time in the past, Jesus is better. And Jesus is the clarity of God's voice. And wherever God's voice speaks, it's for the betterment of the people. So what do you think Jesus is? The betterment of everyone. It was offensive at the time. Definitely, they tried to stop him. They tried to kill him. But it would not stop the truth that Jesus was the clarity of God's voice he was speaking. And then the last one here is Jesus is able. So he's setting it up. God doesn't stop speaking. And when he spoke through Jesus, it's as clear as it gets to who God is. And it's the clarity of God's voice, which is the betterment of all people. And then Jesus is able. Verse 3. After making purifications for sins, this is, he says it in such a small way, but it's the biggest Biggest statement ever. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, majest, uh, of the majesty on high. Uh, we'll get into it in the book, but the sacrificial system, the purification of sins, uh, 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 the cleansing, right? It, it was a constant work. It was a never-ending work because man 
in the condition of sin could never stand in the righteousness of God. So it was this constant ritualistic work. Now, God is working through his people. So ritualistically, this is what's happening. Christ comes in this way. But it never ended. The high priest, when he would make the sacrifices, he never sat down. He was always on job. But he says that Jesus sat down. And that means the work is finished. The atonement is there. Righteousness is now for those who want it. And Jesus has done the work. And he's the only one who could do the work. It was never ending. And now he was able to finish it. Now, to people at that time, that, that's a mind-blowing mentality. That everything that we see happening, the whole system, Jesus ended it. Yes, he did. He finished it because he was able to. First Peter, he, Peter writes about it. And, and remember, when Peter writes, he, he, was, he was there. He was an eyewitness. So it matters, I think, when Peter writes something about Jesus' death. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his, word, by, by his wounds, we have been healed. So you die to sin and Jesus was able to do it. And he sits because it's no longer necessary to make atonement for sins in that way. It's by calling on Jesus. And he's reminding them that he was able to do that. Now, this last verse, verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What a weird verse. He closes his opening statement with this very strange verse. I thought it was fascinating. Now, next week, he's setting up the angels discussion for next week. But when I read something like this, I'm like, what do you mean the name that he has inherited more excellent than theirs? That's weird. What does that mean? Now, we know the Bible says that Jesus is the name above all names. But if you look at the name he inherited, essentially, by being the son of God, Isaiah 9, 6 actually gives a little bit of insight into that. And there will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father. This is a prophecy of what Jesus will come and what names he will bear. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These names are much greater than any name that the angels bear. Because there was a certain group of people who were worshiping uh, Michael and Gabriel. And Jesus is the name above all those names, by far supreme above. If you look at the caption on your Bible, it would say, The Supremacy of the Son of God. That's what, how it will title 1 through 4. And what the writer is trying to remind them of is, like, what you are looking to go pursue is not better than this. And so he's landing at home. Now, I want to close with this. I'm going to read it its entirety like it should be read instead of breaking it up like I did. But maybe it'll give us a little bit more like mm, when we read it. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in those days, he spoke to us by his son. 
and sorry, in the uh, in the last days, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand or uh, of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, they probably would have read it like that, but I hope when we read it, we get a deeper feeling of what this writer is going to be bringing to the table uh, throughout the rest of the book. But I'll say this, I'll remind you of this. Remember, God speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks in love for his people. And so why Jesus matters so much is because that's his voice, the ultimate voice of how he feels about his people and he is for his people. He is like no other mythical God that there is. Jesus is, and I think was, his clearest expression of his voice. And Jesus is able to free you from sin, the sin's death grip, because of who he was and is. So he is able to do what could not be done. And so why abandon that for something that will give us temporary comfort? or to relieve a, a, a mental anguish. Why abandon something so big? You would be, be abandoning the greatest truth that you had come to know. So be encouraged. This sermon is an exhortation for people. It's to encourage them to hang on when things are really hard. Can you bow your heads? I'll just tell you straight that there is no other ideology or quote-unquote salvation that will offer you something greater than Jesus. There will be a lesser power and they will be a counterfeit promise. And if you've lived long enough, you've seen that play out over and over and over. There's always a new idea that can distract you and pull you into something you think would be a better way. But the writer of Hebrews knows, like some of you who've lived in your faith and struggled with this long enough, you know there is no one better. And there is nothing better. And so I hope that throughout this journey, and maybe even today, as you're driving home, that you're pondering that of like, yeah, is Jesus better to me? Have I been pulled aside, distracted? Have I been pressured into, pressured out of? Have I, have I like succumbed to certain uh, 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 persuasive ideas that have pulled me away from the supremacy and the importance and the power of Jesus? Have I begun to tune my ear to other things and tune my ear away from the very clearest expression of God's voice for his people? Have I done that? I want you to ask that question this week about, is Jesus better? Is he good enough? Is he better than what is being put in front of you? Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's been preserved and God read for generations and generations and generations, and today we're a generation reading it as well. 
I ask God that this whole series and even today, that what the writer of Hebrews was trying to communicate and encourage people to, we will experience the very same thing. Our times are not the same, God, and we know that, but you are. And so I ask that you just speak to us the very same way to every person here, that we're inspired and that we grow. And we hope more than we've ever hoped and we trust more than we've ever trusted and we prioritize better than we've ever prioritized and we grow deeply in our faith in you, Jesus, and your work. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me this last song?